Take your Bibles, if you would, and head over to the book of Leviticus. And get used to that, because we'll be saying that for the rest of the year, almost. Most of this year, that's where we'll be. And so looking forward uh, to our new study through the book of Leviticus. And so we are in Leviticus and chapter 1 this morning, Leviticus chapter 1. They say that Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die. And so many of you may uh, not be as excited about this uh, new series as I am, but I hope that changes even this morning and certainly as we go through. So allow me to read, if you would, in your hearing this morning, Leviticus chapter 1, the first nine verses. Our uh, typical method is to read the entire passage because we want everybody to know that we are proclaiming the words of the Lord and not our own. And yet as we are working through the book of Leviticus, the reality is these passages are, can become quite long, and so we may only able to be able to read a portion of them each Sunday. But it's one of the reasons why we put out the Bible reading plan, so you have that in front of you, and it would be our desire uh, that you have an awareness of the passages that are going to be preached each Sunday, and that you pre-read these passages before uh, coming. And so I think you'll see if, as you read through the whole passage, that verses 10 through 13 are essentially a reiterating of what's been said in verses 1 through 9, just for a different animal or animals, and then the same thing in verses 14 through 17. So this morning, we're going to read Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 9. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay or skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of God. And so there you see all your fears about the book of Leviticus are now allayed because you've read this passage and it's not as bad as you thought. I'm kidding. This is a world very far removed from ours and certainly in the culture in which we live. Uh, we go to the grocery store for any meat that we eat and it is already there in the cut that we desire, uh, packaged and shrink-wrapped. And so even reading this can seem graphic. But the reality is there's much for us from this passage this morning. In the first place then, we see in verse 1 that God speaks to Moses from the tent of meeting. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And where we need to go real quick is back in the book of Exodus, chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. So in your Bible, that might only be a page back. If you have a study Bible, maybe a couple pages back. But remember, the book of Exodus runs right into the book of Leviticus. It's essentially, it's not a sequel, but it's essentially just a continuation of what we have seen in the book of Exodus. And so in Exodus chapter 30, 
Starting at verse 34, the text says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying. And so Exodus is taken up with the giving of the law. God coming to Moses. He had come to Moses previously in the burning bush. And then he had descended to Mount Sinai twice in the book of Exodus. Moses goes up to meet him. You remember that awe-inspiring scene where Moses is speaking with the Lord. The cloud is around the mountain. It's covered with cloud and thunder and the presence of God. The people are afraid and they're not allowed to touch the mountain unless they die. And so they are rightly concerned. They're filled with awe and fear of God, the proper fear of God. And then instruction is given on building the tabernacle. The tabernacle is built and at the end of Exodus, God's Shekinah glory, his presence comes down into the midst of his people, and it is there that Leviticus picks up the story. And we go right into the answering of a number of questions. question that must be asked and answered is, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? And how can an unholy people, how can an unholy person connect with, have relationship with, stand in the presence of a holy God? How is that possible? God's presence has gotten closer and closer to the nation of Israel. Now he is in their midst. And three tribes on each of the northwest, uh, north, south, east, and west sides are all facing into this central tent, this tabernacle, this place of meeting, this tent of meeting. And God's presence comes down, and not even Moses, who has stood in the presence of God, or at least spoken directly to him, we know he couldn't see the full glory of God or it would kill him as God lets him know. But even he cannot enter into the tent of meeting. God's presence is there in the midst of his people. And so what a beautiful reality that God's presence now, a holy God, comes right in the middle of an unholy people. And so the question, the answer to the question is how can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people and how can unholy people stand in the presence of a holy God? The, the answer to that question is sacrifice. And so from, verse, from chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Leviticus, we go right into five different types of sacrifice. And these sacrifices have to do with man's relationship with God. They're very different from the pagan sacrifices of the nations around them. And they are beautiful and symbolic. And all of them are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as we'll see this morning in just a moment. But this idea of sacrifice... That to be in the presence of God as an unholy individual is to invite death. And so a living being must give up their life so that the worshiper is not consumed by the, thrice, the presence of the thrice holy God. And the first offering that begins this series of five offerings is this idea of the whole offering or the burnt offering in chapter 1. But as we have God's presence in the middle of his nation Israel... Jesus, one of his names, we just celebrated the Christmas season, is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God himself, God the Son, robed himself in human flesh, incarnated, 
to become one of us and was in fact and is in fact one of us is God with us. And then as we go into John's gospel, Jesus explains to his disciples, I am leaving. When I go, I will send you a comforter of the same kind as me, the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, and he will be in you. What a beautiful reality that as believers in God at this stage in 2022, we don't just have the presence of God in our midst, nor do we just have the presence of God near us in the person of Jesus Christ. We have the presence of God in us through his Holy Spirit. And so what the nation of Israel is experiencing here, we experience to an even greater degree. What a beautiful reality that God is in the middle of his people. But in order for that to happen, there needs to be sacrifice. And so the first sacrifice that is offered is this burnt offering. Now note how this works. An individual voluntarily brings an offering from their herd or from their flock. This is not something that comes to them without a cost. They didn't go hunting. They didn't find an animal that was already dead, some roadkill. This is an animal that they own. They're giving up to worship God something that is going to cost them something, and we'll see more of that in just a moment. They bring this then something from the livestock that actually is necessary for their survival. They rely on these animals for their hides or their wool, for their meat, for their milk, all of these things are part of their survival. And so what, from what they own, voluntarily they come and they bring this offering to God. It must be without blemish, which we'll see in just a moment as well. No defects. This is not a lame animal or a blind animal or an animal born without a limb or an animal that's been injured by a predator and we're going to just kind of butcher it anyway, so we might as well give it to God. These are not leftovers. This is the best that they have to offer. They come to the entrance of the tent of meeting. As you go inside that linen curtain wall, one of the first things you see is the ash pile on the east side of the bronze altar and then the bronze altar itself. The worshiper goes to the north side of that bronze altar and they do the killing. They do the sacrificing. They lean, the Hebrew there is to lean on the head of the animal and symbolically transfer their sins onto the animal as their atoning or covering sacrifice. And then they slit the animal's throat. This is not done by the priest, this is done by the offerer. The priest collects the blood and takes the blood for that offering and sprinkles it on the side of the altar. The reality is that sin not only affects the sinner, but also affects those around the sinner and even the environment around the sinner. We see the evidence of sin all around us. And Paul says in Romans that our earth even groans under the weight of sin. And as we're going to see, the blood symbolizes life. In our passage from Genesis 9 and 10, this, in this morning's Bible reading, our Bible reading plan, God says that directly to Noah as he comes off the ark. You may eat meat, but do not consume blood. Blood is symbolic of life. And so the priest takes the blood as the animal bleeds out and sprinkles it on the altar, symbolically cleansing the altar, symbolically representing life that pushes back against death as a result of sin. Then the worshiper skins the animal, cuts it up into its pieces, and then gives it to the priest. The priest takes it, puts it on the altar, and all of this sacrifice is consumed. This is the only offering 
of the five that are, that are prescribed or, or certainly described by God in his word that uh, the whole offering is consumed. And every other offering, the priest gets some or the offerer retains some or both the priest and the, offer, and the offerer retain something. But in the burnt offering, otherwise known as the whole offering, all of the sacrifice is consumed, symbolic of the complete commitment of the one offering this sacrifice. They are giving everything of this sacrifice to God, symbolizing that they're giving all of themselves to God. And as David notes in Psalm 51, this penitential psalm, as he is uh, confessing his sin before a thrice holy God, he says, if what you desired was just a sacrifice, I could give you hundreds, even thousands of animals. I could give you rivers of oil, but what you desire is a pure and a contrite heart. There is a connection between the offering, between the sacrifice and the one doing the sacrificing and the one to whom this thing is being sacrificed. The relationship here is noted, especially in the burnt offering. And so let's walk through. Uh, I have eight points uh, that, that from this burnt offering. There's many different ways we could approach this. There's so much detail here, but I just want to walk through some things about the burnt offering and then see how all of that points to Jesus Christ, the righteous, and then our response in this. So notice in the first place then, as it relates to the burnt offering, it is the offering that is the most frequently offered, is the most common, if we could put it that way, offering. It is an offering that predates this prescription or description by God himself. Noah offers this when they get off the ark. Abraham offers burnt offerings. Job offers burnt offerings on behalf of his children, just in case they've sinned. It's this whole offering, burnt offering, that is offered even before this description here, before the tabernacle. It is the offering that is offered at the beginning of every day and at the close of every day. A burnt offering was to be on the altar first thing in the morning by the priest, and you see that in Leviticus 6, 8-13, as well as in Numbers and other places. And then in the evening, there was to be a burnt offering on the altar that was to burn throughout the night. And so morning and evening, a burnt offering was offered on the bronze altar on top of all of the burnt offerings that were voluntarily brought by members of the nation of Israel. And on the Sabbath day, there were two of these offerings in the morning and two at night. This is the most common offering that we have in Scripture, the most frequently offered. Notice in verse 2, again, as we've mentioned, this was voluntary. This was not required. Of the five offerings, only the sin and the guilt offering, which we'll get to in due time, are required offerings because of particular sin of someone but this offering and the next two, the grain offering or the cereal offering, and then the peace offering, the fellowship offering, they are voluntary offerings. The burnt offering is a voluntary offering. Notice in verse 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you should bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. This is something that a worshiper wants to do. They desire to symbolize their relationship with God, the desire that there is sacrifice made for atonement of their sins, Burnt offerings are offered for thanksgiving. Burnt offerings are offered in gratitude. Burnt offerings are offered at times of God's um, deliverance. Many different uh, situations in which burnt offerings are offered, but it is a voluntary offering. There's no coercion, and there's no requirement that this offering be made. This is something that comes from the heart of the worshiper. It is their desire to make this offering to God. In the third place, we see that anyone can make this offering, and we see this in two ways. In verse 2, it says, when any one of you brings an offering, and the word in Hebrew is purposefully uh, not gender-specific. 
male and female, men and women, can bring a burnt offering to the Lord. This is not then just for females or just for males, but any human, any member of the nation of Israel can bring a burnt offering to the Lord. And then as we notice at the top, the instructions that we read are for a bull that is being offered, something from the herd, cattle. But in verses 10 through 13, there is instructions for offering a sheep or a goat from the flock. And then in verses 14 through 17, there are uh, some more instructions offering a bird, either a turtle dove or a pigeon. What we note from this is that any Israelite, regardless of their socioeconomic status, they can bring a burnt offering to God. No one is restricted because they don't have an animal to bring, because they don't have enough money or they don't have enough livestock to bring. Anyone can bring an offering, even a turtle dove or a pigeon. It's readily available at this time and could be brought then as a burnt offering to the Lord. So this is freely open to anyone from the nation of Israel who desires to express their gratitude for, to God for his atonement of their sins and for his presence among them. Anybody can make this offering. Notice in the fourth place that it is very personal. As I mentioned, we're very disconnected from this. Even in our current worship, we can at times go through the motions. We can come, sing a few songs, hear a message, or maybe not because we're drifting off, and then we go home. And we can become very disconnected from what it means to worship God, to truly understand the sacrifice that he made for us in Jesus Christ, and to truly be grateful for that. But notice from this passage that the worshiper that comes, they're the ones that laid their hands. And the Hebrew is even stronger than lay. It's, it's lean on. They put pressure on the head of the animal, symbolically transferring their sin and the guilt thereof onto this animal. They could see the animal. They could look in the animal's eyes as they did this. And it's quite possible that as part of this ritual, there were some scriptures that were read or even sung. There are a number of psalms in the Psalter that directly relate to the burnt offering. It's very possible there was more to this ritual than just the killing of the animal. But symbolically, they lay their hands, they lean their hands under the, onto the offering, and then they're the ones that slit the animal's throat. They take the knife into their hands, and they slit the animal's throat. The blood is then taken by the priest, splashed all around the altar, symbolizing the life of the animal given for the life of the worshiper. And then they're the ones that carve the animal up and give the animal pieces to the priest. It's very tangible. It's very visceral. And, and we don't get that, again, because we've, we're con disconnected from that largely. But it's a very personal uh, thing, this sacrifice. It is also atoning. And we see that in at least two ways. Directly at the end of verse 3 and then in verse 4, we see that this is what this is all about. He's offering this in verse 3 that he may be accepted before the Lord. How can an unholy person and an unclean person, those are two different things, and we'll see those in the book of Leviticus, but both could be true, very true, simultaneously in a person. How can I come into the presence of God? God who is a consuming fire, God who is pure righteousness, God who is pure holiness, set-apartness, pure purity. How can I be in his presence? I, I can only be accepted if I offer this sacrifice. And notice in verse 4, as he lays or leans his hand on the head of the burnt offering, it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Atonement means to cover, to cover over. And so his sins 
can be covered over by the sacrifice of this animal. Life given for life so that he can be in the presence of God and enjoy all that that means. There is atonement here. As we've also mentioned then, the blood, which is symbolic of the life of the animal, life in general, is taken by the priest and is splashed all over the altar. Again, symbolizing this distribution of life, pushing back against death and cleansing the altar upon which the animal is going to be offered. They are a people that have the reminders of death, the stain of sin on them all the time and around them. And yet the blood, the life that God gives can and does atone, cover their sins. Notice it must be a pure sacrifice. And there's two things here as well. In verse 3, offer a male without blemish. This offering must be a pure offering. This offering cannot have any defects. <clears throat> and so, in Malachi, God goes, talks to his people and, and says to them, you're bringing to me from the flock animals that are blind and lame and injured. <clears throat> They're useless to you, and so you decide to give them to me. You give me your leftovers. And that is not what God calls for from this sacrifice. Again, it's a voluntary sacrifice. And we note in the early church that this happened. <clears throat> Individuals gladly gave of what they had so that others that didn't could have. When Ananias and Sapphira come, they want all of the glory and all the praise for giving everything to God, but they didn't actually give everything to God. And God judges them for that. This is a voluntary offering, but even as a voluntary offering, the only acceptable offering is a pure offering. Now, I've seen this in my own life and the lives of others. I remember working at a Christian camp when I was in high school and then beyond. And I remember distinctly individuals even saying this, like those words come out of their mouth, I'm going to throw this out. I'm wondering if the camp could use it. We had a pool table at this camp that was concave. It was bowed in the middle. And so whenever you had to break the balls with the pool cues, it did not have any ends. They were just wood. And some of them splintered at that. All the balls would go back into the center. It was great for a game of pool. The ping pong table looks like it had been attacked by rabid beavers. It was trash. And people said this. I don't need this anymore. This is junk. Maybe you could use it in the service of the king. And yet we do this. God is not looking here for our leftovers. He's looking for our first and our best. And do we not do this even with our money? I'll give something to God if there's anything left over. That is not the heart behind this offering and certainly not the heart behind, behind God's sacrifice for us through Jesus Christ. He gave us his best. And so it was to be a pure animal without blemish. <clears throat> Notice again the trust factor here with this offering and sacrifice. Individual to give up an animal from their herd or their flock, which could be used to produce other animals and grow their flock, which would give them hide or wool, which would give them meat, which would give them milk, to bring this animal, not in the case of the male, obviously, in this particular sacrifice, milk at least, but these are valuable things to these people at this time. And so they are trusting that if I give this to God, he's going to take care of me. The purity of this offering. But notice also that there is something in here that is interesting. Before the offering is offered, the worshiper also must do another step. They must clean out the entrails, the gastrointestinal tract of the animal that they're offering, and clean off their feet. 
Why is this, why is this there? Because the entrails probably still have fecal matter in, the, in it, all right? And the feet would have be covered with dirt and muck and also perhaps fecal matter. And so where the animal would have touched the ground and all the dirt and all of the manure and all those kind of things, that needed to be cleaned. And anything in the animal that was considered unclean also needed to be cleaned before it could be offered to God. There is a purity to this sacrifice. There is a, a cleanliness to this sacrifice that nothing that is reminiscent of death and sin and guilt would be offered to God. This sacrifice is pure and it is clean. Notice that it is also costly. We've already mentioned this. <clears throat> but it costs something for these worshipers to, to, to give this sacrifice. This is the whole animal. It's the only sacrifice that the whole animal is offered. Now you can imagine if right if after this service is over, and some of you are hoping it's over sooner than, than later, but let's say we go down to Atlantic Beef this afternoon or tomorrow morning, and we watch somebody butcher an entire cow. And it goes through the slaughter process. Now we see all the cuts of meat. And for the guys in the crowd and possibly some of the ladies as well, we see the T-bones and the sirloins and, the, and, and we see the ribs and then we see the roasts and we're just like, our mouths are just drooling all of these cuts of meat. Even the ground beef is causing our mouths to water a little bit. This is amazing. And then all of it's taken outside and incinerated. And our minds wasted. This cost the worshiper something. The entire animal was given over to God. Nothing was retained. And what that's symbolic of is in the last place is the full commitment of the worshiper. They are saying to God, I'm giving all of this to you and thereby all of myself to you. All of me needs atoning, not just some. And it's going to cost me and certainly cost this animal its life in order for me to be in your presence. But to be in your presence, God, is so worth it. It's so important to me to have your blessing, to have your presence in my life. I gladly give this that costs me much. And I give all of it. And I give all of me. And so in the third place this morning as time winds down, where do we see Jesus in all of this? In every one of these sacrifices, Jesus fulfills them all. He is the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. But notice, in the first place, Although this offering was the most common offering, the most frequently offered, Jesus was offered once and for all. In Hebrews 10, it says, and when he had offered sacrifice for sins once, he sat down on the throne of his father. Different, but yet he is our burnt offering. Paul uses this language in Ephesians 5, 2, that Christ's sacrifice on our behalf was a pleasing aroma to God. Notice that it was voluntary. Jesus says in John 10, 17 and 18, nobody takes my life from me. I give my life. I lay my life down of my own accord. Anybody that thinks of penal substitutionary atonement, anybody that thinks of the cross work of Christ as being cosmic child abuse does not know their Bibles. Jesus did this for us. He volunteered for this, for us, for you and for me. As the worshiper voluntarily brought this offering, Jesus voluntarily came and become one, became one of us and voluntarily went to the cross. He did this of his own will for us. As this offering is open to all, so salvation is open to all. Anyone can be saved, John 3.16. All who repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Your socioeconomic status is not what matters. How cool you are or uncool you are does not matter. How famous or infamous you are 
your, your last name or, or where you went to school or how many degrees you have or all the ways that we use, shallow and otherwise, to sort of match ourselves up against each other. All of that is removed at the foot of the cross. All who repent can come to faith, do come to faith in Jesus Christ and are cleansed by his sacrifice. It is so deeply personal for Jesus Christ. All that you have given me, he says to his father, I have kept except one, the son of perdition, John 10, 28, I hold them in my hand. Jesus knows every individual that he died for. It's a personal sacrifice for all of our sins that he took on himself. It's visceral. We can't even, it seems, watch an even halfway accurate depiction of the crucifixion without it turning our stomachs. And there's a part of that that it should, as this offering should, each time a worshiper made it. Sin is ugly. It's horrendous and it's destructive and it causes death. This is a very personal sacrifice in Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's an atoning sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He gave him, God, his son, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might have the righteousness of God in him. Christ's sacrifice atones for our sins. It covers our sins. It makes full payment for our sins. Because of Jesus Christ, the penalty of not keeping God's law, the penalty of not being holy, is paid for in full by him. Praise to his name. It is a pure sacrifice. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. He's a pure lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus Christ is perfect, which is the only reason why he can be the sacrifice for us. We are not perfect. He is. We can't even atone for our own sins. Christ can atone for everybody's sins who comes through faith to him. He is the pure, spotless lamb of God. It is a costly sacrifice, 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is God's own son. Forgiveness is free to us, but it is not free. It cost Jesus Christ the righteous his life. It cost the father the life of his son. It's a costly sacrifice. And notice the full commitment of Christ to this sacrifice in Luke twenty-two forty-two. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Father, he says, if it be possible, let this cup, what cup? The cup of God's wrath, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. This wasn't just a ritual for Jesus Christ. This was a full commitment of Christ to the plan of God the Father and Him and the Spirit from before anything was ever created, that He would come in history, become one of us, incarnate as a human, and go to the cross and take the penalty for sin, the full weight of sin on Himself. He was fully committed to this, even knowing the weight of what He was about to experience. So what is our response to this as we close this morning? I think it's summed up very well by the Apostle Paul in Revelation 12, verses 1 and 2. He calls us, based on what he said to us about the gospel, again, indicatives before imperatives, based on what we know Jesus Christ has done for us, how unworthy we are, but how loved we are. He says, based on this, therefore, he says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What else could we give to God but everything that we are and everything that we have? He gave everything for us. And so we have to voluntarily give everything to him. The concept of sacrifice is very foreign to us. It's very foreign to us because we read this passage and we kind of recoil a little bit. It's fairly graphic. 
But also the concept of sacrifice is very foreign to us in our culture because we don't have to sacrifice much. We might have to sacrifice not buying that brand new thing that we want right away, but most of us don't even do that. We just put it on credit. We don't sacrifice. We don't have a concept of what that means by and large. And yet it is what God has called us to because it is what he has done for us. He's called us to a life of sacrifice for him. Not because we earn anything thereby, but because out of gratitude for what he has done. We're just so overwhelmed by his grace. Also in our Bible reading plan this morning, Acts 9. What a beautiful reality there of the Apostle Paul. He, knows who he, he knew who he was before Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus. He killed people who believed in Jesus. And Jesus met him and gloriously regenerated him. And all Paul can do is give all that he has left in the service of the one who gave everything for him. And so the call is on us to do the same. Again, not because we can gain our salvation, earn our salvation, or maintain our salvation, but no. Understanding all that Jesus has done for us and that he is the burnt offering for us. You probably noted, if you've been coming to grace for any length of time, that we do not have a bronze altar out front. Sacrifice is done. Why? Because the, the sacrifice has been made. Jesus Christ the righteous is the sacrifice on behalf of our sins. And so because of that, we ought to, out of gratitude, sacrifice everything for him. This is the life he has called us to. We desire a life of comfort, but he calls us to a life of sacrifice because it is what he has done for us and what he enables us to do because of that. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for your great love for us, your goodness to us, your incredible sacrifice for us. We don't deserve to know you. We don't deserve to have your presence with us and in us and have your have us be in your presence. Father, we don't deserve relationship with you. You who are pure goodness and pure righteousness, pure holiness. You who define for us justice and goodness and gentleness and compassion and love and mercy and truth and these and so much more. But Father, we don't even want to be in your presence. We want what we want most of the time and yet you love us and you call us into your presence. And in order for us to come into your presence, sacrifice must be made. Death has entered the world because of sin. So Father, you made that sacrifice yourself. You became that sacrifice for us so that we could have your presence with us. That we'd have your comfort. We could have your uh, majesty and your glory your righteousness and holiness and your truth and your love and your justice and your compassion and your gentleness and your mercy and your grace with us all the time. Father, in light of that, may we gladly sacrifice all that we are and all that we have for you. May you be first, may you be central in our hearts and in our minds and our lives. May our lives not be about us, but may they be about you. Father, because of what you have done for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.